What's up guys, this is Sean. In our last week we dispatched, we didn't cover the economic news of the week because it was a very large piece to chew off and digest, but today we're going to go back, cover last week's important events and how this week's early action are having a massive political and international fallout. Today's podcast is specifically centered on some of the recent economic news out of the Federal Reserve, a growing trade war that's looming with China, and an economic history that's only half a century old and where and how we value our current currency. We're going to talk about the interest rates, the Federal Reserve cut, a response to potential market obstacles in Europe and China, China's currency manipulation and its maturation as an economy in the last 70 to 80 years. And finally, we're gonna run down a common question about the gold standard and whether all our financial problems could be avoided if we simply shifted our currency valuation to something that had a legitimate value and was tangible and we could actually put our hands on it. As always, our podcast is sponsored by Paragon Recovery. Use the code CRONUS15 to get great deals on their products. Paragon Recovery keeps you in the fight through activating your recovery and sleep cycles and check them out and contact them for even more savings if you're a member of the military community or one of the many law enforcement agencies. Let's get into it. So last week, the Federal Reserve cut interest rates for the first time since December of 2008. For you guys, important to know, Jerome Powell is the Federal Reserve Chair. Lower rates means it's effectively easier to borrow money, which increases the money supply and increases the rate of inflation. But the Dow and the NASDAQ last week dropped during the announcement because as money supply is expected to increase, those fixed stocks that you might have in values will be less valuable and investors will be interested in something that has higher yields for them. The drop in rates is to prevent strong market responses to weak European markets. We talked about it with Brexit approaching in the next quarter and a massive trade deal that failed between China and the United States in the last two weeks. We'll talk more about China soon, but I think it's important to understand how the United States monetary policy between the Fed and the Treasury Department combats a stagnated economy and global shifts in market activity. So the Fed is also selling part of its nearly $3.2 trillion worth of Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities that it owns. It did this and secured them after the financial crisis in 2008 in order to keep interest rates relatively low. The United States can purchase its own securities in order to alter the money supply and dollar valuation. And this is a form of what's called financial easing, in which the Federal Reserve buys bonds, which consist of a principal cost and then returns over a 5, 10, 20 year period. By purchasing mass quantities of commercial bonds, the Federal Reserve would increase the money supply that we see on a daily basis, reduce the yields on those bonds, and increase the price of the bonds. And this occurs because if we have fewer bonds that exist in the market, the quantity shift on the supply and the demand curve would make it so that the equilibrium price shifts up uh, for that point where they would intersect. Uh, A bond for the United States is essentially a contract between the buyer and the government. And it's an agreement where the United States will pay interest to the individual before paying back that principal. When an individual holds a bond to maturity, 
or yield to maturity, that person or government will expect a larger payout after the maturity date. So you want to see something back for loaning your money into you know a government. Now, we have businesses that that offer bonds as well, but you know, in another subject we can talk about is you know bonds are rated differently for the risk that an investor is likely. Um, to have in the event that that bank or that government or that business is not successful in their endeavors. In simple terms, though, the higher a rate on the bond, the lower the value of that bond. And conversely, if a bond's rate is lower, it's going to have a higher price. Historically, uh, a nation, though, that can save money through long-term savings increases its investment, which increases its productivity, which increases wages and growth. The whole purpose of banking policy was to increase customer and banking confidence in borrowing and lending to increase market activities. So the reason many in the financial world are criticizing the Federal Reserve's policy is because the last time the Fed cut rates was in response to the stock market losing nearly one third of its value in a couple weeks. Unemployment was at 7% and foreclosures were increasing nationwide. However, Today, stocks are at record highs and unemployment is having its lowest levels in nearly 50 years. Inflation isn't necessarily a bad thing either. We talked the last two weeks about Venezuela and its hyperinflation and the impacts on a regime change in Iran stemming from inflation and hyperinflation. However, normal inflation is healthy for an economy. It helps increase wages and supports healthy lending practices by banks. Normal inflation usually sits for the United States between 2 and 4% for other leading economies as well. But as highlighted, you've seen nations like China often reporting upwards of 6% or more as a result of their central banking policies uh, and their massive growth in the middle class, international infrastructure deals. We talked about the one road policy with Pakistan and going through the rest of the stands and the way that it values its currencies where accounts receivable in unfinished or unsold property is uh, a collateral to that pricing effect. And we're going to cover that more um, comparing inputs and outputs for GDP measurement. But before we talk about China, we're going to highlight another thing that individuals have seen as a threat from China, and that's the ability for a government or massive amounts of individuals to sell bonds that can deflate a currency. One of the fears with China is born from their ability to dump vast holdings of our government debt. The result of China selling a large stake of U.S. bonds, flooding the market with more bonds, would increase the global market with U.S.-backed bonds, effectively dropping the price of those bonds and increasing the yields that we talked about. So while the Federal Reserve in this situation can just cut rates to make spending and borrowing more available to the average consumer and banks and increasing economic growth, China's ability to slow that down by selling U.S.-held debt would be extremely volatile to a monetary policy that we're trying to instill in the United States. However, China's holdings are represented in U.S. dollars. This is something we're going to talk about as a valuable commodity in the world market, uh, and we'll go back into that history. Unlike their currency, which is less valued and has been artificially raised and lowered throughout the years to meet their central planning initiatives, uh, through infrastructure and GDP valuation different than the United States, um, we're going to also highlight some of those problems that that government might have. But in this situation, it is completely unlikely China would get rid of all their U.S. dollar assets completely. 
China currently owns about $3.1 trillion in foreign exchange reserves, which is the world's absolute largest of that type. So crippling an economy in retaliation for a trade dispute would devalue all of their holdings. Also something we should mention, the United States current debt is around $22 trillion. So the $3.1 trillion that China owns is not all in US-backed securities. Okay, and most of our $22 trillion is owned by federal and state governments uh, for scale. For instance, $5 trillion is owned by the federal government in trust funds for Social Security. But as we get back to the China problem and what we face today, the People's Bank of China is their central bank. It's their version of our Fed. And it's allowed its currency to weaken for the first time in more than a decade to go beyond a 7 to 1 ratio. The Chinese bank reported the drop was blamed primarily on President Trump's, and I quote, unilateralism and trade protectionism measures an imposition of increased tariffs on China. And that's based on the $300 billion worth of goods the president identified for a 10% tax and is threatening to increase at upwards of 25%. When a country cuts its currency, goods become cheaper to sell abroad. Uh, and that increases returns on investment for that commodity and that industry. And countries can respond to this by reducing their national currency or increasing tariffs to prevent such actions. However, when we look more closely at the Chinese economy going back to 2011, 2013, the subsequent growth of the middle class and property development means that devaluing their currency today increases the costs of those companies to pay back the long-term loans, which is going to spur wealthy investment firms to take money out of China for investment to other foreign markets where the production costs did not increase. China's history of growth has been the result of a similar plan the United States followed back in the 1820s and 1830s, so it's not new. And that's where infant industries were protected through protectionism. And that's a policy where those commodities that had the potential to produce a comparative advantage in a global market were fueled by U.S. investment and tariffs on other competitive commodities that we would import. It's only today, though, in the American industry where we really begin to argue for the idea of free trade. Understanding the cost to the American citizen generally benefits the nation which has an open border providing the lowest costing goods to the public. The idea of free trade is newer and typically the result of wealthier nations who after decades of market dominance have the wealth to trade under freer conditions. The idea of free trade doesn't benefit poorer nations who often have fewer goods to trade, less capital to invest in growth, and no national or foreign securities investment. And as a result of all this, China's slow GDP growth, recently measuring about 6.5%, should be a good thing for a thriving market. However, when we take a closer look at how they measure their GDP, it's easy to see how the Chinese measurement um, is different than the United States and how 6.5% may not really be indicative of true prosperous growth. Um, one of the guys that I like to read, uh, who's an economist, Michael Pettis, uh, says that GDP is typically assumed to measure the creation of real economic value. If a country's GDP rises by 5% over the course of, say, a year, for example, this is interpreted to mean that the amount of wealth that the country produced in the last five and the last year is 5% greater than in the previous year. In other words, it would be assumed that the country's ability to service debt would have increased by 5%, which means roughly the same thing. So in his research on the Chinese GDP, 
Pettis claims that while China has huge amounts of investment, that money is invested in non-productive activities counted in the GDP, but the investment does not result in wealth or debt servicing capacity. And we'll break that down. If China begins building what it did in the last decade, what was coined ghost cities, uh, the investment is counted towards that GDP because it's economic growth and it's infrastructure. But when no one purchases those apartments, those buildings go unsold, and the return on investment is essentially slashed, that's devastating to long-term growth. And that's something they're going to see over the next 10 to 20 years, and that will be a measure of GDP. GDP in most countries refers to the level of output, but in China, uh, it is an anticipated input determined annually as a target that various local governments and ministries uh, have to fund uh, through heavy debt. So long as China has a debt capacity, um, it has the ability to fund these measures, its GDP is going to continue to grow because it's going to meet its targets. Pettis states is it's more of a measure of political intention. This is because China has a central planning bank and government, uh, as many communist and, and socialist type governments do, um, and the plans that they draft limit competition and large-scale economic growth, uh, settling for just a few um, in an industry more uh, so than a capitalist market could really afford in an open laissez-faire situation. The problem with this is just like Venezuela, which is a petrol state, if we put restrictions on that country or on that commodity or on the government, the entire national wealth could essentially collapse. To our last topic about currency valuation. If a market can have such a drastic impact on a nation's wealth, would there be a simpler way to determine wealth, one that we could hold and actually see and measured rather than a currency situation in which our value is based on so many policies and statistics and different forms of measurement that the average person simply can't grasp or understand. Um, and that topic I'm talking about is the gold standard. The gold standard is a monetary system backed by fixed quantities of goods, which was used heavily in the 17th through the 20th century. You can look back even further in history when taxes and weight of gold was used to supplement costs for massive campaigns, shifting the power in Europe through conquest for even more and more. And it's one of the reasons why Europeans even went westward, crossing the vastness of the ocean, hoping to find gold, and instead really ending up with the cash crops of corn and tobacco. The benefit of the gold standard was it guaranteed a fixed exchange rate for currency to a nation's gold deposits and specifically a de facto standard based on the prevailing gold balance globally and what a country could convert from gold to actual bills or coins. In the 1700s, you've heard the term doubloon used in all these pirate movies and films, but it was the Spanish gold measures nations like Britain adopted and her West Indies uh, trading companies standardizing against their bills as they progressed from silver and gold to a combined method. As nations use gold to set currency ratios internal to their own economic policy, creating this massive global network with agreed uh, prices for weight of gold, setting interest rates against the reserves they were stockpiling meant that banks could now borrow and loan based on national backing of gold quantities. 
and the money supply in a country was backed by this gold specie and paper money was actual legal tender with an actual value. More could not be printed without dropping a gold standard ratio adjusted by the larger global market. And this kept hyperinflation at bay for years because nations couldn't print more bills than they could back because gold couldn't be devalued too aggressively on a global market without collapsing the entire system. But we fast forward to World War I. Nations at the center of the war were spending billions on the war effort and realized the rigidity created by the gold standard made borrowing and spending nearly impossible to keep up with building those formidable armies and their fighting machines. Nations ended up suspending the gold standard to pay for the cost of the war, leading to hyperinflation in the war-torn European continent. We see that in places like Germany, where the hyperinflation absolutely decimated the German middle class, paving the way for the Second World War as the Germans were made to reject a traditional government planning for socialism and creating a Jewish scapegoat and massive amounts of anger. The result of the gold standard was also felt here in the United States during the Great Depression, where the Federal Reserve could not engage in money creation or increase the money supply to spur our own economic growth and get us out of the Depression era. As a result of the nation's experience in that Great Depression, the Gold Reserve Act in 1934 was signed and ordered the Federal Reserve banks to turn over all their gold reserve supply to the United States Treasury. In return, those banks received certificates as reserves against deposits in banks so there couldn't be a real run, which allowed the U.S. to devalue the gold dollar and increase the money supply. Now, this leads us to 1944 and the Bretton Woods International Monetary Agreement, creating the commodity money, which limited nations from manipulating the flow of commerce in a fiat currency model, the one that we have today, because it forced trade to be backed by certificates of gold, or silver sitting in reserve. So that would kind of be beneficial today if all of our trade and our dollars were based on the goal that you had in Fort Knox. Nations would have to adopt a monetary policy that maintained the exchange rate of its currency within a fixed value, which was set by gold, and then forcing the nations to convert foreign official holdings of currency into gold. So at all times, quantities had a physical value. Many nations actually ended up holding their gold reserves in America as the United States at one point had over a third of all the gold in vaults like places of, like Fort Knox. In fact, Die Hard with a Vengeance set in New York was about Hans Gruber's brother stealing all the gold in New York City, the greatest city on earth, and to quote John McClane, hey, hey, how about we just skip down to the part you tell me what the fuck this has to do with me, huh? Okay, I'll do that. It also made the United States currency the backing currency of the world at the time. If a currency was losing value, the government could buy up its currency in foreign markets to increase the value of the dollar. The International Monetary Fund works as a global central bank to help the globe, excuse me, to help the globe regulate currency and borrow against slow growth rate. But in 1971, the Nixon shock was the last remnants of the gold in the economic models, where the U.S. terminated all conversion of foreign-held dollars into gold and strictly backed the currency on the dollar. Ups and downs, the market experiences, and the threat of trade wars, a gold standard would prevent nations from devaluing currencies because gold sitting in reserves would back all trade. So nations could only set prices based on market values and trade. However, gold stagnates economic growth. As we've seen in large recessions, uh, it also prevents real growth from occurring because nations in economic turmoil can't regulate that money supply to counter the fallout of a war 
or massive depression or other global events. So in conclusion, I really hope this podcast gave you a little bit of insight into how some of the current economic policies are driven by individual nation histories like ours in China, uh, who have experienced their own ups and downs in forecasting wealth management, as well as the ongoing attempts to increase individual wealth for every citizen. That being said, we'll be back this Sunday for more weekly dispatch reports, and you can catch Brain Body Bobby Weekly. Check us out online at www.chronosfit.org or email us at hq.chronosfit.org for all the questions about the podcast, programming, or opportunities within Chronosfit. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.